The scripture this morning is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 through 12. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus." They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Josh, thank you for preaching last Sunday, bud. Very thankful the word that you brought from the first four verses of this letter as we continue our study of the two letters Paul wrote to the the church in Thessalonica. We're we're preaching them together for a specific reason. It's not just, well, second follows first, so why not fit it in before Christmas? No. The theme of these two letters is similar. First, similar to the second, namely, living with the end in view. So Paul is is seeking to help us here to know how should we think and feel and act today, right, in light of what God says is coming tomorrow. That's what it means to live with the end in view. In other words, we don't want to have spiritual blinders on that only see and therefore think and feel and act in light of what is going on right now. That is deadly, friends. We, we need to be able to see the future so that we can understand the future and live with that end in view. That's what these letters are about. And Paul comes back to that issue over and over and over again. Thessalonians, you must live with the end in view. And he does that for a variety of different reasons. But one of them becomes quickly clear toward the beginning of the second letter. Namely, Paul has learned Because Timothy went to the church in Thessalonica and came back to Paul in Corinth. That the Thessalonians, young Christians, have discovered something about Christianity. They've come face to face with something. They're feeling it in a new way. What's that? That following Jesus is really hard. Does that surprise you? Following Jesus is really hard. It's very hard. It's it's hard for all sorts of reasons most of which have not changed over the course of 2,000-some years of church history. 
But in the Thessalonians' case, it was hard because they were being persecuted and afflicted on account of their faith. You know, sometimes I hear someone say, and I won't argue with this all the time, but, but I'll hear someone say how, how much more opposition there is to Christianity in our culture today than there was in our culture 25 years ago or 50 years ago. Maybe you've heard that or, or said that. Well, my simple answer to that comment would be following Jesus has never made anyone popular. Never. It didn't make the Thessalonians popular. In the first century, and friend, it's not going to make you popular today. If you are looking for a fast track to popularity in this world, do not follow Jesus. So while the, the knife edge, if you want to think of it this way, of, of the world's antagonism to the claims of Christ may have been hidden by American cultural traditions in the 1950s, the underlying opposition to two things, Jesus' rightful authority as our creator and the exclusivity of salvation through faith in him alone, those two things have never been well received. They've never gone over well. Why not? Because Jesus has this way, a marvelous way, of violating our modern sensibilities that we are in charge. He's good at that. He does it over and over and over again. And the world hated him accordingly when he walked the earth. And so we shouldn't be surprised when as a result of choosing to follow him, we experience the same kind of opposition. John 15 verse 18, what did Jesus say? If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Says Jesus, who's generally right. About the things he says. <laughs> Always right. But you know, when I read a warning like that from Jesus, sometimes the words can trick it, get us in trouble, right? So when we hear the word persecution, I think our minds can easily go to what other people in other places are experiencing on account of their faith. So maybe you think of a story you read in the news where someone was physically attacked for being a Christian, or put in prison for owning a Bible, or beaten for sharing their faith, and certainly the kind of persecution that our, our brothers and sisters in places like China, or Afghanistan, or, or North Korea, that we should be deeply concerned about that and fervently praying for them. That is, that is a, an acutely painful kind of persecution. But, but hear this, friend. If that, the situations I just described, is the only category you have for persecution. So, some other people in some other place, that's persecution. Then you, friend, if you're a Christian, are cutting yourself off from the hope and help God wants to give you in the midst of a different, but no less real, kind of persecution and affliction that we experience 
right here in our own community. So, let me ask you some questions. Is following Jesus illegal in Richmond, Virginia? No. No. Thank God for that. Right? But is the truth that Jesus lived and spoke and the truth that as his followers he's commanded us to live and speak, is it broadly welcomed or broadly opposed? It's opposed, right? And my whole point is that it's always been. It's always been. There's a faith undermining, joy-robbing kind of persecution and affliction that we experience as Christians as a result of that opposition, regardless of whether our faith is technically legal. And I would describe it as the not-so-subtle message from the world around us that we're the odd man out. That we're the weird ones. And that we need to get with the program. So we don't say things like this, but man, do we feel this, right? Everyone else is going along, seemingly having a generally great time, and you're over here denying yourself. Trying to fight to steward your money, conduct your relationships, choose your entertainment, direct your sexuality, choose your words, reorder your affections, in keeping with an old book. (laughs) Really? I mean, props for embracing the golden rule. But but for heaven's sake, why, why do you have to be so radical and intolerant? I mean, last time I checked... The world just keeps right on going the way it always has. So wouldn't it make more sense for you to do you, for me to do me, and everyone can be happy provided you just stop taking this whole faith in Jesus thing so seriously? I mean, if it works for you, great, but but just dial it down. Ever felt that? Sense that, right? If if you're a Christian, I think it's fair to say all of you listening to me in this room right now, I I doubt, could have happened, but I doubt seriously that anybody has stuck a gun in your face this week because you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But I am 100% certain that you felt on some level the sense of being opposed an unwelcome stranger in exile in a world that doesn't want God to be in charge. And friend, in the midst of that kind of creeping sense of alienation and the spiritual suffering that goes with it, I simply ask you this morning, where will you turn for comfort? When you feel those things, where are you going to go? Where are you going to look for an assurance that your faith isn't in vain. That everything you're trying to do in following Jesus isn't futile. That you're right and God's word is right. And all that you are hearing from the world around you is dead wrong. Where are you going to go for that? Where will you turn for assurance that your faith is not in vain? Well, Paul's 
answer to that question is what's driving him here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And his answer may surprise you. It's simply this. You need to take refuge in the coming judgment of God. You need to take refuge in that. Because for all the details in these verses, and, and it was I had quite a time this week deciding what to focus on and what not to focus on. The main point is really, really simple, okay? The coming judgment of God ensures that your faith is not in vain. That's the point. The coming judgment of God ensures that your faith isn't in vain. We serve a God of justice, friends. He will not be mocked because he's jealous for his glory. And so when we're, when we're tempted to give up, when we're tempted to call it quits, because following Jesus is hard, and going back to doing life our way is just easier, we have to remember something. We have to remember two things about the justice of God. And so I have two simple points this morning. First, endurance and suffering displays God's justice. Endurance and suffering. Keep going and following Jesus when it's hard, displays God's justice. Look at verse 5. What does Paul say? This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, which of course begs what question? What is the this referring to? What what is evidence of the righteous judgment of God? Well, look back at verse 4. We boast about you in the churches of God for, listen, your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So think about this here, okay? How is steadfastness and faith in the midst of persecution and affliction evidence, proof of the righteous judgment of God? I would argue it doesn't feel anything like that in the moment. <laughs> okay? What, what does it feel like when you are suffering on the path of obedience to Jesus? What does that feel like? It feels like something has gone terribly wrong. Right? Something's not right here. If God is real and everything he's promised and his word is true, then how come the more I try to do and say what Jesus tells me to do and say the more difficult my marriage gets. The harder parenting becomes. The more my mom thinks I don't love her. The the more the other guys on my sports team maintain a, a cool distance, leaving me socially isolated and feeling like I need to compromise something if I want to have a single friend. Staying the course in those situations, continuing to follow Jesus, easily feels like getting hit in the face And then popping right back up and saying, please, sir, may I have another? (laughs) Who likes that? I mean, evidence of the righteous judgment of God. I, I keep on loving him or trying to, and he treats me like dirt. Where where is the righteous judgment in that? That's what we think and feel, right? We wrestle with that. Well, friend, when you endure suffering at the hands of others for the sake of following Jesus, listen to this. Your very act of endurance 
your steadfastness and faith, what Paul commends back up in verse 4, it proves something. Think about this. It proves, it, de- it makes an undeniably loud statement, it demonstrates that God is on your side. And that because God is on your side, his power will ultimately triumph. So, so when you're persevering and following Jesus, even when it's really hard, the sustaining grace at work in your life, the supernatural help that God is giving you to keep going, when it would be easier to call it quits and not keep going, that shouts to the world that righteousness will prevail. It is, if you would, a, a vindication in advance from King Jesus. Because your suffering for his sake might not go away anytime soon. I'm not promising you that. The word of God isn't promising you that. But your steadfastness in the teeth of affliction, the very fact that you keep on loving him and loving the people around you when they're making it so hard should convince you and all the people watching you that your faith is not in vain. Think of it this this way. Supernatural perseverance on the part of a suffering Christian is a living and breathing invasion of the justice of God in a world of pain. Because that perseverance enabled by God is proof, evidence that the Lord sees you. The Lord knows you. The Lord's with you. And the Lord's upholding you on that path because you have chosen a path that is pleasing to him. It displays that. It's not easy, but it's glorious because on that path, God's using your suffering even now to bring you to himself. Notice here the suffering that Paul's recognizing in the Thessalonians and in us. It's not pointless. It's not futile. It it has a purpose. It's accomplishing something incredibly good and beautiful. Look back at verse 5. What's it getting done? That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. That's what it's getting done. Well, by considered worthy, does Paul mean that we earn God's love or acceptance, our entrance into the kingdom of God, by enduring persecution. No, absolutely not. God, God isn't sitting up in heaven, okay? This is not the case. He's not sitting up in heaven saying, just so you know, I'm watching to see if you persevere, and then I'll decide if I want you on my team. That's not the Lord. That's not the way he rolls. The only way we enter the kingdom of God, right? The only way we experience his redemptive rule, that's what the kingdom of God is, as redeemed sons and daughters of the king, is through trusting the person and work of Christ. Jesus brings us into the kingdom through his life and death. We've sung about that this morning. We don't bring ourselves in. And yet, please hear this, we must not forget something else. What necessarily confirms the authenticity of that faith? What's that? It's your suffering. Christian. Why? Because we follow a suffering Savior. Think about this. If if you think you are following Jesus, 
but you never experience any opposition or resistance or affliction as a result, it's quite possible you are not following Jesus at all. You might think you are, but you're probably just following a God of your own imagination and using him whenever it's convenient for you. Now, I'm not saying, please please hear this, I'm not saying that a life that is largely free from major troubles is necessarily ungodly, okay? If you are not experiencing extreme suffering right now as a Christian, I don't want you walking out and thinking, oh no, Matthew says I must not be following Jesus. No, it's not what I'm saying. I am saying that far from calling into question the truth of what we believe, or the glory of the life we have chosen as Christians, suffering actually confirms it, verifies it, validates it. 1 Peter 4 verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, what happens when you follow a suffering Savior, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you, friend. So so think about this, okay? Your endurance on the path of obedience in affliction is evidence of something, the righteous judgment of God, and it is affecting something. Namely, it's confirming that you are indeed on the path to glory and it's proclaiming the worth and value of God's kingdom in the process. Your suffering is getting all of that done. But don't miss this final phrase in verse 5. Notice what Paul says. For which you also are suffering, speaking of the kingdom of God. In other words, when you obediently endure affliction, you're not ultimately suffering for your own sake, as if the only benefit is a greater sense of personal assurance that God considers you worthy of membership in his kingdom. We are also suffering for his sake that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also are suffering. So how does that work? In what sense are we suffering for the sake of the kingdom of God? Well, we suffer for God's kingdom in the sense that our obedient endurance declares, please hear this, friend, that the joy of knowing and following Jesus is infinitely superior than the joy of having an easy and trouble-free life. Nobody will bat an eye at you, nor should they, quite frankly, if you choose Jesus and it never costs you something. Okay? Go with Jesus. But if you choose Jesus and then your roommate watches you restrain your sexual desires so that you might honor God's good design for sex and marriage, that we'll start to raise some eyebrows. Why? Because it's costing you something. 
And that, that suffering and the mockery and embarrassment that often come with it, you know, I mean, you just hear it in your mind. It's like, what? You're a virgin? How quaint. That shouts something to the world. Your perseverance in those situations screams something to the world. What's that? Jesus is better. And in shouting that through your perseverance, friend, you are displaying the justice of God. You are holding forth to the world what God says is true and right and good. That's why I say that our endurance and suffering displays the justice of God, both in what it evidences and affects. That's just verse 5. <laughs> We'll pick up the pace here a bit. But here's point two. Our endurance doesn't just display God's justice. Just consider that. Jesus' return guarantees God's justice. In other words, what we are displaying through our perseverance is not infinitely lingering just around the corner and never coming to fruition. There's a coming day when God's justice will completely prevail. And, and I can imagine the Thessalonians just listening to this letter. Because remember, that it would have been probably read to most of them. You know, and hearing Paul basically say, guys, take heart. Your steadfastness in faith and suffering is, is evidence of the righteousness of God. It's proof God's on your side. It's proof you're part of his kingdom. And it's even now testifying to the supremacy of his worth. All right, so Thessalonians, come on in. Ready? One, two, three. Let's go suffering. Yeah, I don't think so. Not so fast, Paul. Because all those promises may be somewhat encouraging, but there's still one thing you haven't told me, Paul is all my affliction and persecution ever going to end? Is following Jesus always going to be hard? Will my life as a Christian always be more difficult and painful than the life of a non-Christian? To which Paul says, starting in verse 6, absolutely not. Absolutely not. The, the justice of God that we display through our obedient suffering is more than a spiritual principle or an abstract divine idea to which we kind of hope that the arc of history is somehow magically and mysteriously just going to bend. There's actually a point in time, a day in human history when the justice of God will fully come to pass in a decisive act of divine judgment. In other words, the justice of God has a finish line. It has an end point. There's a day when those, what does Paul say? Who pres- those who presently afflict others will be afflicted, and those who are presently afflicted will find rest. The righteous judgment of God will prevail. And in verses 6 to 10, Paul makes at least three points about that coming reality. So an attempt to summarize all that's here, consider this. First, God's judgment is personal. It's personal. Notice Paul doesn't say, those who afflict you will be afflicted. 
as if somehow by some mysterious turn of fate, the winds of fortune will suddenly shift and everything that's been dished out on you will get dished back on them. He doesn't say that. What does he say? Verse 6, look there. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. Question, who is doing the repaying? Who is doing the granting? God is, right? It it couldn't be more personal. What is Paul saying? Christian, your enemies are God's enemies. And he's taking it upon himself to give to your enemies what they deserve and to you what you deserve. And when we consider that, We should pray, Lord, would you give us the humility to allow you to be God and to stop trying to do your job for you? What do I mean by that? Well, I think it's really tempting to try to give those who hurt us just a little taste of their own medicine. Just a little taste. You know, I'm a Christian, so I'm not going to give you a big taste but just a little taste. But by taking matters into my own hands, or I'm going to sick the governing authorities on you and sue your pants off. Now listen, governing authorities, when they are ruling in the fear of the Lord, are established by God, right? And the sword that they wield on his behalf is a gift when they exercise their power in keeping with his word. But, but hear this, friend. Our hope for justice doesn't ultimately lie in a legal system or a human court of law. As, as much as it is good and right for us to benefit from them and to advocate and agitate for their improvements, our hope for justice lies with the Lord. Okay? Christian, he is your defender. He's the one who upholds your cause. So don't don't hope in the justice of men. Hope in the justice of God. Trust him to bring justice to pass because he will personally ensure that his righteous judgments come to pass. God's judgment is personal. It's, It's both completely proportional in that sense and entirely fair. Notice it's not capricious or uncontrolled. The simple repetition of that word afflicted assures us of as much. What is God saying? God will personally repay with affliction those who presently afflict his people. And he will personally grant relief to his people who are presently afflicted. That is really good news when you are suffering on the path of obedience to King Jesus. Really good news. Because it means that the wicked will not ultimately prevail. God will prevail. Your suffering will not last forever because his justice will come personally to pass. It's the first thing Paul says. Second, God's judgment isn't just personal. It's fulfilled in the future. And I think this might be the hardest part of the entire passage for all of us. Why? Because in my experience and observation, we are quite content to wait for the justice of God for five to ten minutes. (laughs) Right? I'll wait. 
I will wait for you, I will wait for you for five to ten minutes, you know? But then when it seems like the wicked keep prospering and we keep suffering, all bets are off. So hands that first came to God with a tearful cry for mercy in the midst of injustice, we start to shake them in anger at the Lord, convinced you are failing to do what you said you would do. What gives? Well, what's the problem with that, friend? The problem is that we, we have forgotten that God does not yoke himself to the time that we think is best. Who would be God in that scenario? You. God tells us to trust him and to wait for the time of justice that he says is best. 2 Peter 3 verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So when will God's righteous judgment come to pass? Look at verse 7. It will come to pass when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. You know, throughout the Bible, fire is a symbol, not always, but many times, of the presence of God, of his absolute holiness, of of his consuming purity that destroys all who arrogantly set themselves in opposition to the Lord. And friends, that is exactly what Jesus is going to be like on the day that he returns. On that day, what will he do? Look at verse 8. He will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That's two ways of describing the same group of people. Who's that group? Well, they're people who do not know God in the sense that they refuse to believe and trust in him as he has revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ. In other words, they're not Christians. And Paul's warning here in verse 8, friend, reminds us that you cannot know God apart from Jesus. You can't. So when I'm having a conversation with a person I just met, at Southern State, talking about what fertilizer we're supposed to be putting on our grass this kind of year. And, and they say, you know what? They found I was a pastor, and they make an offhand comment. Well, there are, there are many ways to God. You say what? I say what? Paul, Paul says what? No, there's not. No, there's not. Because the Christ of Christianity is not one expression of the knowledge of God among a multitude of equal expressions. Okay, unless you have repented of your disobedience of God's law and placed your trust wholly in the Savior who lived and died and rose from the grave for you to forgive you of your sins, make you right with God, and you submit every area of life to his authority, the God you think you know is a God of your own imagination. If you want to know the one true God, the only God, you must come to him as he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. There is no other friend. There's no other way of knowing God. There are not multiple paths to knowing God. There is one path, and it is called Jesus Christ. 
And if you don't know God because you don't know Jesus, and if you think you know better because you don't really need Jesus, or if your life doesn't reflect a pattern of obedience to the truth of the gospel, notice that's the standard. There's no room here for saying, oh yeah, I know God, I know Jesus, he's a cool guy, but I'm kind of doing whatever I want to do. No, if you know God, you are what? Obeying the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no such thing as a true knowledge of God absent submission to the authority of the God you claim to know. They're one and the same. You can't divide those things. And if you are not presently obeying the Lord, friend, you should be utterly terrified of dying. Utterly terrified. Why? Because after that day, it will be too late for you. It'll be too late because the, the judgment of God against your sin isn't just personal or, or fulfilled in the future. It's eternal. God's judgment is eternal. Consider this, verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. What does that say? That what you choose to do with Jesus isn't just an intellectual issue or a religious preference issue. It's a moral issue. If you, if you fail to submit to his authority, you deserve punishment. Why? Because God created us, right? And as his creatures, we're accountable to him, morally accountable to him. That's the foundation of the entire Christian worldview. We're creatures. We're not our own. And we're accountable to God for the life that he has given us. So what will that punishment, every person who rejects Jesus, consist of? What does Paul say, verse 9? It will consist of eternal destruction. It's the exact opposite of the eternal life that God freely holds out to us through faith in Jesus. And, and that verse is a reminder, friend, a sobering reminder that if you die apart from Christ, you won't vanish. You won't disappear. You won't, you won't even be annihilated. You will wake up to the terror of an eternal night of pain and torment under the righteous wrath of God. And anticipating that judgment, the prophet Isaiah wrote, Isaiah 66, 24, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, says the Lord, for their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Hell is not a joke, my friends. It's not a joke. It's not a religious scare tactic. Hell is a consequence of the very justice of God. God cannot be just if hell is not real. It's that simple. And, and the Bible doesn't tell us all the details that we might want to know about hell. We do know it's a place of eternal punishment. And maybe as you hear me say that, you're thinking, 
Okay, here another preacher man goes railing on about sin and damnation. If you're wrestling with that right now, I want you to listen very carefully to me because that objection is rooted in a lie. Think about this. Why is God's punishment against our sin apart from Christ eternal, unending? I mean, you could think certainly at some point, you know, I'll, I'll kind of have suffered enough to atone for all I have done wrong. And at least it won't take as long as that guy I saw on the news last night. Well, not at all. Because the measure of the punishment we deserve is not determined by how we compare to our fellow man. It's determined by the glory of the one that we have offended. The glory of our God and creator is infinitely great. And therefore, the debt of our sin and the punishment it deserves is infinitely great. No matter how you line up to the people around you. And and notice, in large part, what does this eternal destruction, punishment, consist of? What does Paul say? Being forever separated Look at verse 9 again. From the presence of the Lord and the glory of Jesus. Now when I say that, I wonder if that surprises you. Really? Like, surely it would be a little more scary than that. You know? Just separated from the presence of the Lord, the glory of Jesus. I'm not particularly interested in the presence of God or the glory of Jesus right now. I'm not even sure why I'm in church this Sunday, but I seem to be doing just fine. So, man, if that's what hell is like, all right, be scared. Well, friend, to the degree you read that and think to yourself, I can imagine something far worse. I warn you, because those are the words of an idolater. Why? Why? Because the measure to which you think there is something more devastating than losing the joy of knowing God is the measure to which you are chasing or you have settled in your heart for an inferior pleasure, for a false God that will inevitably disappoint and ruin you. In other words, Paul's reminding us here, there's no anguish in hell greater than than the anguish of eternal separation from the light of the glory of God's face. Because that's the only glory that can satisfy your soul. No one else ultimately can, friend. You you were made to know him. You were made to enjoy him. Every other pleasure in this world pales in comparison to him. So hear me this morning. Do not destroy your soul by rejecting what is infinitely satisfying. You think, you think you're, you're fooling God? You're not? You think you're just not sure if Jesus' concept of the spiritual side of reality is, is good with you or it's going to work for you, it's kind of what makes sense to you? That is not at all what is going on, friend. From God's perspective, you are rejecting Jesus, and in so doing, you are rejecting what is infinitely satisfying. Don't do that. Don't destroy your soul by rejecting what would be infinitely satisfying for your soul. 
That makes no sense. Turn from your sin and come to Jesus. Trust him to save you. Trust him to restore your relationship with God that, that your sin is broken. Because if you do that, on the day he returns to execute the righteous judgment of God, you won't be filled with terror. You'll be filled with joy. Why? Look back at verse 10. When Jesus returns, Paul assures the Thessalonians he's not only going to inflict judgment, vengeance on his enemies and the enemies of his people. What's going to happen? He will come to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. In other words, the entire reward of choosing to follow Jesus and what we experience on that final day of judgment as a result of that choice we make right now isn't just, congratulations, you managed to avoid hell. You realize that? We can think like that. Well, you know, maybe I'll kind of get right with Jesus because I'm not sure if hell is real or not, but man, if it is, that's kind of creepy. So at least I'll have Jesus. So, you know, when I, when I kick it, uh, oh my word. Hold on. Jesus, get out of jail free. No, no. He died for something far better. He died to give you joy. That you might be glor- that he might be glorified in you. And that you could have spent all of eternity marveling at him. Think about that. Jesus will be glorified in his saints and his people because on that final day, if you're in Christ, he's going to remove every trace of sin from you every trace. You'll become the perfect image bearer of God that you were made to be. So when Paul says, when Jesus is revealed, something else is going to be revealed on that day. You know what it is? The glorious sons and daughters of the king. When he's revealed, you'll be revealed, Christian, for who you really are. And on that day, when our glory in him is revealed, you won't be passively standing by will be actively marveling at the majesty and splendor of our Savior. We will be eternally preoccupied with seeing and enjoying God. And I love that because it reminds us that the choice we make right now to follow Jesus or not isn't just a choice that, well, ultimately one ends in life, one ends in death, so I guess on objective balance, life is better than death, so I guess I'll go with Jesus. All right, what do you want me to do? Commands. No, no. The choice isn't just a choice between life and death. It's a choice between joy or no joy. That's the choice. Infinite joy or infinite sorrow. Because if the great sorrow of eternal destruction in hell is separation from Jesus, the great joy of eternal life in heaven is being with Jesus. That's Paul's point. And it's good to remember, friends, in these verses that the justice of God because of the return of Christ has a finish line. It has an end point. Jesus' return guarantees God's justice. The coming day when the righteous will be rewarded, the wicked will be punished. And that coming judgment, both what it spells for the wicked and for the righteous, that ensures that your faith is not in vain. Conclude with this. You may have noticed that we've spent no time in verses 11 and 12. I say that our faith is not in vain because it is only through faith, 
trust in Jesus right now that you can be assured of eternal life with Jesus on the day of God's judgment. And that's why Paul reinforces in verse 10 the necessity of believing the apostolic testimony about Jesus. And yet, please notice this. Please notice this. His confidence for the Thessalonians' future glory in contrast to the final destruction of their enemies is not the strength of their faith. It's what? It's the power of God to keep them faithful to the end. What does Paul say in verse 11? To this end, given this is where the world is going, we're praying for you. We're praying for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by the strength of your faith. No, what does he say? By his power. Whose power? God's power. God's power. That the Lord, in other words, right now, Christian, is mightily at work in your life. He's making you more like Jesus. He's he's effectually called you to be glorified on that day when he returns. But he isn't waiting passively for that glory to be revealed and displayed through your life. He's working in you right now on this side of that final day to make you worthy of his calling by making you more like himself. Not just despite your suffering, but guess what? Through your suffering, in the presence, Jesus is being glorified in his people by making us more like him on that road of suffering to glory. And it's the power of God that will keep you, Christian, faithful on that path of obedience to Jesus, even in suffering. And it's a gift of his grace. So what will ensure you, ultimately, that your faith is not in vain when you feel like the odd man out You feel like the stranger, you feel like the exile, and you think, it sure seems like the world's just going on the way it's always been. I wonder if all that I am doing and sacrificing for his sake is actually worth it. What you need to take hold of in that moment, friend, is the assurance of the coming judgment of God. The doctrine of the judgment of God is not merely a warning to the non-Christian, though it is. It is an incredible comfort for the people of God. Let's pray. Lord, that you love us enough to both warn us and comfort us. Father, we thank you for the warning that because of your jealousy for your glory and your commitment to your justice, you will not let us continue in rebellion against you forever. You will punish those for all eternity who do not bow their knee to you in this life. Thank you for loving us enough to be honest about that 
to give us that warning. And Lord, I thank you in the teeth of that warning that you hold out an alternative to that eternal destruction. You offer us, through faith in Christ, if we are willing to bow our knee to him, submit to his authority, the gift of eternal life, the joy of being glorified in you and marveling at your majesty and your beauty forever. Lord, I pray this morning there would be none, even as we heard that prophetic word earlier, who say, I don't like the first option, so I'm just going to kind of hope I get the second. Lord, guard us from that. That is a vain hope. That is a futile hope. For you have told us very clearly in your word that it is through faith in Christ alone that we have an assurance of eternal life. And so I pray this morning, Lord, for every man or woman in this room who thinks they are fooling you or has tried to and is afraid, perhaps, of choosing to follow you because they don't think they can cut it. It just looks too hard. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would lead them to repentance right now with a promise that it is your power that will fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith. Thank you for power from above that sustains and protects and works out and brings to fruition saving faith in Jesus Christ. And we pray that through your spirit you would grant that power and you would guard us from assuming that simply because we go to church on Sunday that we have experienced that power. And Lord, I ask that where you have granted an assurance that we are indeed following you, Jesus. That in all the affliction and trouble we experience as a result on that road of obedience filled with suffering, that when we suffer and when it is hard, we would recognize and remember that even that endurance is a sign, a proof, a foretaste that your justice will prevail. Give us that comfort, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.